Last night, my wife and I had a dinner with Pastor Chris and, uh, and Cindy, and he told me while I was there that I could preach on tithing, I could, uh, I could preach on appreciating your pastor, I, I could preach on uh, perfect church attendance. I tell him I'd be happy to preach on any of those subjects, but I charge double overtime for them. And it was at that point he said, well, you just preach on whatever you want to preach on tonight. And so we're going to talk tonight about the greatness of the God we sing about, the greatness of the God we worship. But before we do that, let's just bow and pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we do believe in all the things we just sang about. We do want to pause right now. Because you are great. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. Give us a mind to comprehend just how awesome you are. So that we could properly worship you. We pray that our lives would be transformed by being in your presence. And coming to know the God we worship. Help me tonight to communicate to your people. Forgive me of my sins, for they are many. I ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Back somewhere, ladies and gentlemen, I guess about the mid-1960s, there was a well-respected pastor by the name of A.W. Tozer. Tozer wrote a little book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It became a very popular book. And in the introduction to the book, Uh, Pastor Tozer made this statement. He said, what comes to our mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. In other words, our concept of God, our understanding of God, our comprehension of God is more important than anything else. With prophet-like clarity, Tozer then foretold the church's coming loss of the majesty of God, that we would begin to, to, to no longer comprehend God and revere God the way that we ought to. Um, and there would be, as a result of that, a loss of reverential awe of God among our people and in our churches. Um, how do I know when my vision of God, my comprehension of God has grown dim, I know it by the way I live my life, and I know, I know it by my worship of God, the way I worship God. I believe it's proper and fitting for us to regularly ask ourselves, what is my response to God, especially my response to God in worship? Is it casual? Is it ho-hum? Is worship dull to me? Or am I repeatedly awestruck with the awesomeness of God? You see, when I look at my life, guys, it's, it's very obvious that at times I have grown casual in my relationship with God. And I have at times lost the proper sense of awe and wonder that I should have of God. And I believe that as Christians, it's very important for us to have fresh 
encounters with God such that we revitalize our relationship with God, our worship, our wonder, our reverence, our evangelism, and mission. Tonight, I want us to take a fresh look at the prophet Isaiah and his encounter with God in in Isaiah chapter 6. And so if you brought your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6 tonight. We're going to look at the first eight verses, and I'm going to be reading to you from the New American Standard translation. Isaiah writes this, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord uh, seated on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, saying, <clears throat> Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me. For I am undone. For I live among a people of unclean lips, and I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. It is atoned for, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Isaiah chapter 6 is, well, Isaiah's call to the ministry. It occurs in 740 B.C. at the death of King Uzziah. Uzziah was one of Judah's few godly kings. He ruled for more than 50 years. And his rule was really characterized by national peace and prosperity. Tragically, prosperity and the ease uh, that accompanied it did not, well, it wasn't good for the people. It did not bring them closer to God. They drifted away from God. When you read the book of Isaiah, you recognize that they're still a very religious people, but they've lost something. They've lost a sense of the awe and the wonder of God, the majesty of God. The religious forms are there, but the devotion of God reflected in keeping His commandments. The the awe of God reflected in worship has faded. You see, you can come to church, you can sing the songs, you can pray the prayers, you can say the words, and your heart can be far from God. The flame of passionate companionship could have dimmed long ago, replaced by something that's dull and passionless. Like a corpse, the form remains, but the life has departed. And so in this context, with the people drifting God calls Isaiah to minister to the nation. I want us to note first Isaiah's 
encounter with God. Entering the temple, Isaiah is transported via a a vision into the portals of heaven itself. And he enters into the throne room of God and there is a heavenly worship service going on. Now I want you to picture this in your mind. Angels in reverent adoration. The foundations and thresholds of the temple seismically shaking. The smoke of incense filling the temple. Yet all this is tangential to the chief figure who is seated upon the throne, whose very presence and being radiates the glory of 10,000 sons. The self-existent eternal king without beginning, without ending. The great I am who simply is. The one who by the sheer force of his will and the creative word of his power commands the universe into existence, sustaining it moment by moment. The almighty sovereign who gives life and breath to all, inscribing the number of their days on his calendar. The one guiding history to its divinely appointed destination. The one before whom one day the Bible says every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Isaiah encounters Almighty God. The train of his robe fills the temple. Now in those days a king's robe and his train display his majesty. The longer the train, the back portion of the robe, the greater the king's power and glory. Seraphim, angelic creatures, themselves august in power and glory, are there there bowing before God, engaged in heavenly worship, Adoring their sovereign God. That's the sea. I believe the posture of these six-winged angelic creatures has something to say to us. If you look at your text, you notice that with one pair of wings, they cover their faces. Why is this? Is it out of reverence? Is it due to the fact That they cannot bear to look upon the the luminous presence, the, the brilliant Shekinah glory of God. The one who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. The text does not tell us. But it does say with the second pair of wings they cover their feet. And I believe that's no doubt out of reverence. The words of the seraphim's worship holy 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 reveals the cause of their reverence it is the God who is majestic in holiness guys you don't create awe awe is something that you experience when you encounter holy God. 
Now, the word holy is used more than 900 times in the Bible. God in his nature and being is holy, 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 which is the Hebraic way of saying that God is exponentially, superlatively holy. His name is holy. His angels are holy. His heaven is holy. His spirit is holy. 26 times Isaiah refers to him as the Holy One of Israel. Okay? So what is holiness? Well, first of all, holiness refers to God's transcendent majesty. Our God is awesomely distinct. He's in a league of his own. He is transcendent over his universe. But the word holiness also refers to God's intrinsic glory, the majesty, the splendor, the brilliant beauty of God's perfections. Yet, I believe that in seeing Isaiah's response to God, I believe that Isaiah is speaking primarily of God's moral majesty. His absolute moral purity. I wish I had the the ability to convey to you the moral perfection of God tonight. Words fail to do that. If God's character was composed of all the grains of sand in the entire universe, we would not find a single grain polluted or defiled in any sense of the word because he's holy He's not simply 99.9% holy. He's 100% holy. There is no moral standard to which God is accountable. God himself is the standard. He is the very essence of goodness and righteousness and holiness and truth. Now, it's difficult today to convey to people an understanding of the holiness of God because we live in a culture that sentimentalizes God. God today is more like, well, a sentimental grandfather or a cosmic buddy. He's not the high and holy God of the Bible. He is the impeccable high king of heaven. Do you you understand that tonight? In the words of the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk said, Your eyes, God, are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. The Bible often speaks of God's anger, which is his righteous indignation against God. God, we need to understand... He doesn't just dislike evil. He hates evil. He can never be at peace with evil. Without exception, God always acts righteously, which means he always punishes evil. Now, when you think about this, when I look at Isaiah, I think that his encounter with God must have been wondrous and terrifying at the same time. Holiness vindicates the cry of the human heart for justice in the world when we look around and see this world is warped by sin. 
unmitigated evil, global terrorism, the beheadings of Coptic Christians in Egypt, sex crimes, child abuse, you name it. The radical barbarity of ISIS with, with which there can be no compromise, no negotiation. God's holiness guarantees to us that one day sin will be judged and vanquished, and that's good news. But you know what? <laughs> it's also bad news. What do you mean, preacher? Well, God's holiness gives no quarter or compromise with our own sins, with my sins, or with your sins. We find ourselves confronted with the white-hot blaze of God's holiness, a holiness that consumes all impurity of evil, because God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. And while I can hide my dark sins and secrets from you, I can't hide them from God. He knows. He knows. Which brings me to my second point. The light of God's holiness exposes our sin. We never see our sin rightly. We never understand our sin or take it seriously until we see it in the light of God's holiness. Until then, we'll treat it differently from the way we should. We never understand the evil of our heart, the depravity of our nature, until the searchlight of God's holiness shines upon our souls, revealing that there's something tragically warped within us. We don't simply commit sins. We sin because we're sinful. And our words and deeds bear witness that we are not good God's holiness exposes Isaiah's sin. Stricken with fear, overcome, how does Isaiah respond? Isaiah says, woe is me. I am undone. It's a cry of deep distress and misery arising from the exposure of his own wretchedness. Now stay with me here. Isaiah is not your ordinary sinner. Isaiah is quite possibly the most righteous person in the nation. And yet he finds himself undone. Ruined before God's holiness. What is the deed that damns him? What is the sword that slays his conscience? Is it some capital crime? Treachery against God, high treason, rape, murder, robbery, actions of the vilest nature? The prophet's self-confessed sin is found. Look at it, verse 5. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. (laughs) Isaiah, wait a minute. The slip of a tongue... Is that what you're telling me? A word of anger breaking out here? A profane word slipping out there? Gossip or slander surreptitiously slinking forth? Is that all? Isaiah, don't you know those sins are misdemeanors? 
Listen very carefully to me. The great problem in our nation today, the great problem often in the church is that we've lost sight of the holiness of God. We no longer blush as a people. The ability of a nation to feel shame diminishes as its understanding of God's holiness and our accountability to Him diminishes. Okay? Isn't that the case with us? Have not Americans, even those of us who call ourselves Christians, have we not lost sight of the holiness of God to the point that sin in our nation has been diminished to, well, trivial mistakes, misdemeanor crimes, the equivalent of a moral traffic ticket? No, guys, that's not right. God is holy. There are no misdemeanors. When was the last time you heard someone say, woe is me? When was the last time you saw someone tremble before holy God? Sin is serious. Sin is despising God. In fact, it's so serious, God has said he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Let's move on. I'm running out of time. Point number three, there is the expunging of sin. Now listen to me. God's holiness would be very, very bad news for every one of us were it not for the wonderfully good news that follows in verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with the burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. What we discover in these verses is not salvation by performance. It is not Isaiah working his way back to God. It is not Isaiah resolving to be better, to do good deeds, to be moral, to be more religious so that he can bridge the gap between holy God and himself. It is God here who takes the initiative. We find something here that you will not discover in any other of the world's religions, the awesome, the immeasurable, the extravagant grace of God reaching down to rescue sinful humanity, expunging our sins by means of sacrifice. Note the centrality of the altar, verse 6. The altar reminds us that God, the God who is extravagant in mercy and grace, has made provision through our, for our sins through sacrifice. The altar points us ahead to Jesus' sacrificial giving of himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The altar represents the altar of Calvary where Christ poured out his life's blood to atone for our sins that we might experience full and free forgiveness. 
on the cross, Jesus assumed all our sin such that, and he paid for it, such that God could freely and fully forgive us. I suppose Josh McDowell has probably spoken on more college campuses than any person alive. And McDowell says the the question that he regularly receives everywhere he goes is this question, could God really love and forgive me? Could God really love and forgive me? Well, the answer to that question is found in the seraphim's words, your iniquity is taken away, your sin is forgiven when you place your faith, your trust in Christ. Listen to me. If you're here tonight and the sins of the past rise like ghosts to haunt you, if you're here tonight and the sins that you commit daily, the sins that damn your conscience are constantly upon you, I want you to understand that Christ has paid for them in full, and they've been expunged at Calvary's altar. No matter how sinful and guilty we feel, Calvary covers it all. Point number four, my last point. When Isaiah discovers God's grace and forgiveness in the atoning sacrifice, he is then empowered for mission. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Observe the word go. It is Isaiah's call to mission. It is his call to ministry to the nation. What does it remind you of? It reminds you of our great commission where Christ said, Go and make disciples of all nations. Listen to me. Every Christian is called to be a missionary right where you are. Every Christian is called to be a maker of disciples. And that's why it is so important that we receive fresh encounters with our awesome God. Apart from a vision of our awesome God reigning in resplendent glory, we will waste our lives on the trivial. Apart from fresh encounters of the God who is holy, 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 we will trivialize our sin. Apart from fresh encounters with God's extravagant mercy and grace, we don't have a message, a gospel to proclaim. Fresh encounters with God fill us with joy and faith, the fuel of mission. So let me close by saying this. I encourage you to seek fresh encounters with God every day in three ways. Number one, slow down. Slow down. Psalm 4610 says, be still and know that I am God. Busyness, guys, is the bane to knowing God. Don't let anything crowd out your time alone with God. Number two, bow down. 
like the angels, make it a priority in your life to worship God. Worship God daily before an open Bible on your knees in prayer. Make it a priority in your life together every Sunday as a people, as brothers and sisters in Christ, so that we can worship our awesome, majestic God. And finally, not only do we slow down and bow down, thirdly, we speak up. Surrender yourself in fresh ways every day, fresh ways for mission. Every day say, God, here am I, send me. God, bring someone across my path today who is a divine appointment so that I can speak to them and tell them your marvelous good news. Would you bow with me? If God is speaking to you right now, I just pray that in your heart you will do business with God. If you have wandered and gotten far from God, I pray tonight that you would renew your commitment to Him right where you are. If sin has gotten in the way, the Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Just come clean with God and let him, let him fill you up with his presence and power. Father, I, I know tonight that there have been times in my life when I've wandered from you. It's so easy to do. We get so busy. Father, I just pray that you would renew us, help us to constantly be seeking fresh encounters with you. Look at me right now. I don't know if you would like to come down. There are going to be ministers here. And uh, we invite you to come down and speak to them. If you don't know Christ, come down tonight and let us counsel you. If you're here and you'd like to become a part of our family, we welcome you and we invite you to do that right now. So, Wayne.